Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We haven't talked about Frank LaRose on this podcast in a while. We'll change that today. It is Today on Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Lisa Garvin, Laura Johnston, and Courtney Astolfi, who will be joining us quite a bit over the next couple of weeks. You're going to think she's a regular. Let's begin. <sighs> All through the Issue 1 campaign, Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose falsely positioned it as a way to stop interest from outside Ohio from influencing the state. That was clear hypocrisy, of course, because the main funding for the campaign was from out of state. How is Frank LaRose, Laura, now compounding his hypocrisy with regard to out-of-state interests influencing Ohio voters? Well, this was the rumor all along, right, that the reason that LaRose was pushing issue one so hard was because he wanted the backing of an outside interest to run for Senate. Because you got to remember, like, Frank LaRose is a politician who's not independently wealthy. And he's running against Matt Dolan and Bernie Moreno, who are Republican millionaires trying to unseat Sherrod Brown, longtime Democrat. So he needs resources if he's going to compete. And so he is planning an October 3rd fundraiser in Chicago hosted by Family Pack Federal. That's a conservative political action committee, really big on anti-abortion issues. And six area Republicans are listed on the event invitation as co-hosts. The most prominent name on the invitation is Illinois billionaire Richard Uline. He's one of the most prominent GOP donors in the country. He spent about $4 million of the 4.8 total raised for the pro issue one campaign. And he's the, he's the guy. So this, I'd like to remind LaRose that he is running in Ohio, not Illinois. Look, think about how easy it's going to be for Dolan and Moreno to nail him. They have his own quotes. They probably have video of him saying, we have to stop outside interests mm -hmm. from affecting Ohio. And they're going to say, where's he getting his money to run for the Senate? Outside Ohio. I mean, it's it's such total hypocrisy and so obvious. How does this not blow him apart? I, I have been saying for a while, I just don't think there's a lot of brain power there. This is a stupid, stupid move. Yeah, you'll get the money and you have opened yourself up to look like hypocrite number one in a state there's where there's a lot of them. And the reason that the family pack is behind him and probably Richard Uline is because of his anti-abortion stance. And I mean, we have the, an abortion issue on the ballot in November, which, you know, the majority of Ohioans, according to polls, are for abortion within reason. And so he's making his entire platform. He's going out of his way to alienate people almost. I, I really don't understand the thought process here other than, I mean, he's aligned himself with Trump. He's going hardcore all the way. I, I know, but you can't get past the idea that he just spent the better part of a year saying outside interests should not influence Ohio no, races. Right. I completely and, agree with I mean, you. It's like, and now he's getting his money from the outside interest, let alone that issue one was largely funded 
by people from out of state. It the whole thing. It's just one of those you sit back and think, what could this guy be thinking? And, Marino and Dolan must be looking at him the same way. But don't you think that this raises bigger issues about campaign finance in the first place? I mean, so Uline has given a lot of money to a lot of things, Republican Wisconsin Supreme Court candidate in a race to determine determine the control of the state's court there, millions to women speak out and affiliate of the Susan B. Anthony pro-life America. I just... It feels like this guy, I mean, I don't even know how he made his money, but he's just throwing it around in different states, like affecting the very people who live in that state, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin, the Senate race in Ohio, just because he wants abortion to be illegal, he can influence everything. But but he's not the candidate and the candidate should have integrity. This should should be about character. And if you spend the better part of a year saying no more outside influence, you really shouldn't be taking the outside influence. The ends don't justify the means. I think this is going to cost him huge. Although I don't even know how much of a chance he had. He's so tied to the failure of issue one. It was a humiliating defeat for him. He tried so hard to get Ohioans to vote against their interest, and they saw completely through it. I think they see completely through him. You're listening to Today in Ohio. You'd think that Ohio State House Republicans with supermajorities in both chambers would be able to have some consensus and get some things done, but is an intriguing rivalry brewing that could be the wrench in the works as they settle down to draw new legislative maps. Lisa, fascinating analysis by Andrew Tobias. Yeah, there are a lot of political undercurrents here. Uh, The redistricting committee will meet today to begin drawing Ohio House and Senate district maps, but there's kind of an emerging rivalry between current House Speaker Jason Stevens and Senate President Matt Huffman. Huffman, who is term limited in the Senate, is expected to run for the House in 2024, and he could challenge Stevens for Speaker, and I would be surprised if he didn't, and that's going to be so different than last year, 2022, when Huffman and former Speaker Bob Cup worked closely together to draw maps. They actually pushed out the rest of the redistricting commission when they did that. But Jason Stevens got the Speaker job because he got the support of all 32 Democrats in the House. Um, will he work with the, the two Democrats on the commission to pass maps? Will he protect the 22 Republican members who voted for him, three of whom are term limited? And then others you know, other Republicans who voted for him have challenges. And any tiny change in a district line could actually make or break these Republican incumbents in the March primaries next year. Um, You know, there are 32 members in the Democrat House. And like I said, they all supported Stevens. But if some of them lose their seat, he could lose their vote, but then he could also gain votes. So there's a lot of speculation going on here. But the current map, the legislative map for Ohio, favors the Republicans in the House, 57 of 99 seats. Republicans on the committee could increase that, like I said, with small changes to the current map. The uh, Republican members took eight districts that were won by Joe Biden in 2020, and all but two of those eight are up for re-election, none of whom supported Stevens as speaker. So there's a lot of interesting political undercurrents going on. It'll be interesting to see what's happening. But we also know that, you know, the House GOP really wanted Derek Maron as speaker, and I think they're still angry about that. What throws me on this is that this presumption that Matt Huffman, as soon as he gets elected to the House, could be the speaker. 
There's a bunch of people in the house that have been there for years already who might want that job. But there's this belief that if Huffman gets elected to the house, he becomes speaker. You know, he hasn't really treated the house very well. Mm. I mean, he's kind of lorded his power in the Senate over them. Why would anybody in the house want him to be the guy? He's also the guy that humiliated the Republicans in the legislature by going all in on issue one and then getting just butt slapped by the voters on it. So I'm not sure he's this all powerful guy that people are presuming. He lost huge on issue one. He's treated the house badly. Why on earth would those people make him their leader? And we're looking like a year ahead, so or about six months at least. So I I don't know. But like I said, you know, there are there are these political, you know, rivalries that are kind of maybe gonna bubble to the surface. And the House, you know, Republicans are far from united. It's hilarious, though, because they have super majorities. They can pretty much do anything they want. And the infighting gets in the way. It's just it seems like everybody always has to have something to fight. And if the Democrats are so weak that they can't really fight you, you fight among yourselves. It's going to be interesting to see who prevails in this. Huffman or Stevens. Great stuff by Andrew Tobias to tap into it and lay it all out there. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've been sitting on this one for a couple of days, but it is a big one. What is Senator Sherrod Brown's proposal for keeping students on school buses safe? Courtney. Yeah, Sherrod Brown last week introduced, you know, a bunch of new safety measures for school buses. And this comes just two, three weeks after that horrific bus crash down in Clark County when an 11-year-old student was thrown from the bus during a crash and died. 20 other three, 23 other students were hurt, and this clearly caught Brown's attention. He teamed up with Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth, and they introduced a bill that would require the U.S. Department of Transportation to issue new rules requiring seatbelts on school buses and various other safety improvements. And the seatbelt thing is a big thing. Everyone knows those don't exist on school buses. This bill would require three-point safety belts for every seat on a bus, and then a bunch of other things like automatic braking systems, event data recorders, like like a black box, essentially, and, you know, fire suppression systems, stability control, and a bunch of other things. We've been having a pointed debate on our editorial board about this. I'm of the mind that it should be automatic that there are seatbelts in buses. I've never understood why there aren't. The argument that they're expensive does, doesn't hold any water for me. Seatbelts don't cost that much. The installation isn't a lot. Although this other stuff, the black boxes and things like that, that would add uh, some serious cost to the buses. But the state just spent untold millions replacing windows in schools across the state with bulletproof glass, that costs a fortune. We could at least do seatbelts. It's, it's interesting that, that Sherrod jumped on this because for many, many, many years, the argument's been, yeah, you know, it's not that high an accident risk. There aren't that many kids that get hurt in school bus crashes. How you're putting too much onus on the school bus driver to bring order. But all of a sudden, Sherrod Brown's saying, yeah, we need to do it. And I wonder what the trigger is. Is it just one death in Ohio? Well, you know, in the news release that went out announcing this, you know, Brown noted how this is in line with recommendations from the National Transportation Safety Board. So he's pointing at experts out there who are already calling for these changes. That could be some, you know, that could add some backup to his argument here. But you also talked about the expense here and Chair Brown's bill didn't overlook that. 
this bill would call for the creation of a grant program that would help schools fund these improvements on existing buses. Now, back home in Ohio, the governor has convened this task force. We're looking at it locally, but there's obviously appetite for this beyond Sherrod Brown in Ohio on the heels of this Clark County issue. You know, the Illinois Democrat Duckworth got on board too. So it's getting some attention. I do want to point out the difference in leadership styles between Sherrod Brown and Mike DeWine. Sherrod Brown took a look at this and said, you know what? We need to do this. Mike DeWine delegated the decision making to a whole big group of people where it'll get bogged down for a while. Lisa, you've been in the debates on the editorial board. Where do you see this going? Well, what I see is an expense. I, it, retrofitting buses or getting new buses is not going to be cheap. Um, and also retrofits, I don't know if you can even like trust them to be, you know, to hold up. But I just think that while public schools are watching money being siphoned from their budgets for private school vouchers, how are they going to pay for upgrading their buses? There you go. Like I said, we're having a bit of a pointed discussion at Tura Board. There's a little bit of flavor of it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. I read this next story and wondered how it could be true. Why don't the experts think they have to do something to save the wildlife, including the fish, when they drain Hinkley Lake to rebuild the dam starting next week? Laura, how can the wildlife survive if their habitat quickly disappears? Well, it's not like it's going to disappear, poof, abracadabra, like snap your fingers and it's gone. The lake is going to drain through the Rocky River over weeks or months so the animals have time to find new homes. So Pete Krause goes through this, all the animals that live in the lake in his story. Honestly, it felt like a children's storybook. Like I felt like it needed to be illustrated when we talk about the snapping turtles and the the egrets or whatever. But the Metro Parks, the reason they're doing this, they're going to build a better dam. And so they're getting rid of the lake. The lake won't reopen until 2026. So obviously anybody who swims or fishes or paddleboards in the lake is going to have to find someone else. And the animals have to figure it out. While this dam is raised about six feet and there's a new 150 foot concrete spillway constructed. So the thing is, I mean, animals have instincts. So painted and snapping turtles aren't very speedy, but they're probably they can move up to two miles. So they'll probably find another lake or pond somewhere. Beavers are in the dens in the marshy backwater area. They're going to move into other areas without any other problem. Obviously, their land creatures. There are special accommodations for a colony of freshwater mussels that were living in sediment where the east branch of the Rocky River flows into the lake. They had scuba divers move about 1,500 of those and move them upriver to a similar silty location. But most of the fish, are, um, and that's largemouth bass, channel catfish, sunfish, are going to migrate back up the river or follow the flow from the draining lake downstream. Obviously that goes into Lake Erie. The only fish that might have a problem, I guess, are the carp, which like to hang out in the shallow, uh, silty water. And so they might have to move those, but I don't think they're, they're deciding that yet. I'm seeing the illustrations in the Lorax where the fish all get up and leave the polluted lake. (laughs) It just seems odd that, that there wouldn't be more care. I, I imagine people are going to be scoping this out, and if there are dead fish on the suddenly muddy bottom where there used to be a lake, we might see pictures get posted. Um, yeah, I think I, the metro parks are going to pay attention, and so is the Ohio Division of Wildlife. It's not just like they're like, yeah, whatever, it'll be fine. Like, they're monitoring the situation. 
Yeah, I, I read the into it. The, it'll be fine, much more than you did. But we'll have to see. It's an interesting quandary. You're listening to Today in Ohio. At last, at last, Lisa, the new COVID vaccine is coming any day now. Are Northern Ohio pharmacies ready to provide it? It seems that most of them are. So the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and Advisory Panel endorsed the new COVID shots yesterday for people aged six and over. This was after FDA approval on Monday. And the sign-off from the CDC director, which was the final step, did occur yesterday afternoon. So this means that the COVID vaccine can hit Cleveland area pharmacies later this week. CVS is saying they're expecting their shipment this week. Rite Aid and Discount Drug Mart say they're going to be offering the COVID shot, but didn't say when exactly they were going to get that. Cleveland Clinic will be offering the COVID shot next week at their primary care offices and some of their pharmacies. We haven't heard back from Walgreens yet, so uh, that's one that we you know don't know. This new vaccine is effective against all circulating variants. Uh, there's only one dose needed. So this is not a booster. It's actually like a flu shot. It's just a one-time thing. You can also get COVID, flu, and RSV shots all at the same time. It's unclear yet if the current spike in COVID cases will continue to rise in our area and nationwide or whether it'll level out. But we have seen it go up nine weeks in a row right now in Ohio. As of last Thursday, we'll be getting updated uh, figures tomorrow. I can't wait. I've been wanting this shot for a long time. And then last week, my wife, who had not had COVID, neither of us had, got a terrible case. And I thought, oh, I'm dead. The, the vaccine's not ready. But so far, I haven't gotten it. And I want that vaccine. Uh, what's surprising is in the last round of the vaccine, very few people got right. it. Uh, I want, wonder if you see an increase now because it really is on the rage again. Since kids went back to school, lots of people are getting it. I and, and I hope that people, because I would hope that people are at least getting their annual flu shots if they're not getting COVID. But this is a way, if you go in and get your flu shot, you can get COVID at the same time. Now, RSV is a brand new vaccine. It'll be interesting to see how many people get it. My mother, who's 94, did get her RSV vaccine. But it's currently only available for people age 60 and over. They'll probably sign off on approval for younger people later. Yeah, for, from the people I know that have gotten RSV, that's a pretty ugly one, too, so it's worth getting the vaccine. Well, finally, good news. I hope we see these soon. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's stick with the virus theme. This is a national story, but it affects a lot of people in Northeast Ohio. What does the federal government have to say about a key ingredient used for years by millions of people to battle cold and allergies? And I ask this question at the height of ragweed season, Courtney. Yeah, that drug doesn't work. Stop using it. Stop relying on it. It's kind of the message I came away with here. My jaw dropped on this one. A Food and Drug Administration advisory panel on Tuesday came out saying oral versions of the drug phenylephrine. It's a nasal decongestion. It's it's, it's popular in things like Sudafed, PE, Sinex, Allegra, Dayquil, Benadryl, Allergy Plus, all the usual suspects. They say that drug do doesn't really work when you take it through a pill, when you take it orally. The advisory panel was looking at this. You know, there are nasal decongestant versions, you know, that liquid you shoot up your nose. They were, that was not what this was about. This was about the pills you take. Most Americans prefer to take pills this way to, to deal with nasal congestion. And it, it had been thought to work by reducing the swelling of blood vessels in the nose, but... 
this FDA panel concluded it, it doesn't, not much really gets to your nose when you take it orally through the pill and it doesn't work. So the drug companies have made millions and millions and millions of dollars on this. You would have thought the FDA would have done this testing before it was approved, not years after this thing has been bought over and over again. This was, like you said, a pretty big jaw dropper. Wait, wait, this thing that people have used regularly forever has no effect whatsoever on their cold symptoms. Yeah, it basically said it's like a placebo. There, there's really no effect here. And there was a reference in the story about like, you know, modern testing has kind of uncovered this. I, I wonder what the backstory is there, why previous uh, rounds of vetting this drug didn't turn this up. But I guess we'll see where it goes from here. The full F the FDA has to act on this advisory panel's recommendation. But if the FDA follows through and, and yoinks this approval, Johnson & Johnson, Bayer, other drug makers will probably have to pull these meds from the store shelves. What's sad about this is it saps confidence in other drugs the FDA has approved and possibly even into vaccines. I mean, this is something people have been using. And, and now they're finding out, well, yeah, you're a chump because you took it all those times and it didn't do a thing for you. It was all in your head. Odd story. I do hope somebody digs into how that could have happened. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's a new proposal in Columbus, Laura, to help middle-income seniors in Ohio keep their houses as they age? They can freeze their property values. So if you cover any kind of city government or school board, you hear this complaint a lot. People pay off their homes so they don't have a mortgage anymore, but every three years their home value gets reassessed and their taxes go up when their value goes up. Also, obviously, if... Um, if anything gets passed, like a new levy, but they're on fixed incomes and they can't afford it. So this 70 under 70 bill that legislators have have put forward in the House could come on top of the state's homestead exemption and other tax breaks for older Ohioans. You have to be 70 or older, make up to $70,000 a year and have owned your home for at least 10 years, but then you wouldn't have to pay higher taxes on your house. And the legislation would actually compensate local governments for the loss in their tax revenue because they're freezing the value, which I was actually surprised because usually they don't make the cities whole. They're just like, oh, they'll figure it out. What's nice is that these folks are generally on fixed incomes and their costs mm -hmm. are always rising. Fixing their taxes so they, they know exactly what they're dealing with should give them some peace of mind as they get older. It's a, it's a very kind thing to do. Uh, it was good to see. I hope it gets bipartisan support, but maybe if it just gets I Republican mean, support, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. Well, that's true. But can you, I, I can't see Democrats signing against it. But can you see that campaign? Like, this is the old people vote, right? And you're like, that's the person that wants you to pay more taxes. I don't think it would be very popular. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I hope so. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, no. So this 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 was discussed. I think Cleveland Neighborhood Progress had been pushing for this proposal. City Council got mm. kind of a briefing a few months ago about their efforts to move this through the state house. And it, it, it strikes me that this is like a big deal for Cleveland and cities. But part of the messaging for back from that presentation was that this also does affect rural homeowners too. So the hope there was that it would get bipartisan support because it affects both the party's voter bases. But up here in Cleveland, you think about communities like Tremont, longtime homeowners there. Um, you know, when that area gentrified and the property taxes went up, a lot of 
longstanding folks were priced out and, and kind of raised hell when the reappraisals happened. It's a serious issue for Cleveland, and Cleveland leaders are, are big time keeping their eye on the movement here. Yeah, it's See, I right told you to if you cover city government, you cover this issue. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Here's another housing story more aimed at low-income people who need shelter. Lisa, Cuyahoga County is considering a plan that carries a pretty heavy cost. What is it? Yeah, County Council has three proposals that are totaling $26.5 million for low-income rental assistance and affordable housing units. They'll be looking at that starting next week. Of the three programs, one of them is $10 million in rental assistance via Empowering and Strengthening Ohio's People, a Cleveland-based nonprofit, $10 million in rent and utility assistance through the nonprofit Emerald Development and Economic Network, Incorporated, and six point three. $5 million to help build 341 affordable housing units and rehab 64 existing units through various different groups. So most of this money is coming from U.S. Treasury funds. It's an emergency assistance fund. Um, that would be available to people through June of 2025 for income eligible tenants, although they haven't set those parameters yet. Affordable housing, most of that will be paid through the same program, but 21% of it will come from the Housing and Urban Development Department. They have a home funds program. So the county has set a goal for itself to reduce homelessness 25% by 2027, and they see this as a first step toward that goal. I wondered whether this was a luxury spend when the county is facing gigantic bills for a new jail and justice complex, but Layla Tassi said that this money from the federal government has very specific strings attached that it has to go for housing. And so the county is just deciding how best to position that money to help as many people as possible. This isn't a done deal. There'll be hearings about this before they make their final decision. Yes, that's true. And of course, what worries me about any funds, I mean, if it's only good through June 2025, what happens after that? Yeah, it's a good question. Hopefully they'll address that in their hearings. It's today in Ohio. Let's have a happy ending. We talked a few times about the venal Bedford Heights treatment of a former canine officer who wanted to keep his dog when he left. He did end up with the dog following some public outcry. And now, Courtney, he has settled his outstanding claims with the Cleveland suburb. How has this ended? Yeah, this lawsuit is done, settlement, and Bosco is with his his human. Bosco is the canine police dog that was kind of at the heart of this case. Former Bedford Heights officer Ryan Ketzel filed lawsuit after a series of, of weird things that, you know, he went in thinking he could keep his dog when he learned the department was disbanding the canine unit. And then the police department reversed course and, and he, he wanted his dog. Officers and canines that, that work with them, they do form bonds like any other human dog pairing. And he wanted his pooch back. So as, as this lawsuit comes to a close... Ketzel agreed to a $30,000 settlement with the city. He'll get about, you know, 20 grand of it. Some will go to his lawyer. And then part of that is it it gave him the chance to buy the dog for $4,000. And we know that the dog is already back in his hands. So we've got a conclusion here. Well, and that money ought to go a, a bit of a way in feeding and taking care of the dog, although... 
We all know dogs cost a lot more than that over their lifespan. Good for him. I'm glad he got the dog. I'm glad that there was a public outcry. Bedford Heights was way over, out of the line in the way they treated this one. It's a good case. That's it for today on Ohio on a Wednesday. I do want to say thanks to everybody that is continuing to send us notes about the Catholic policy with regard to LGBTQ issues. Uh, I don't think we've ever seen such a heavy concentration of heartfelt notes from people who are struggling with this one. We're continuing to pursue stories on it. It's a subject we'll talk about in future episodes of this podcast. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you for listening. We'll be back on Thursday. Thursday.